This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Bob Lane. Welcome back, listeners. And for those who have been listening to us for the last part of the show, uh, thanks for staying with us. And anybody who's just joined us, welcome. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Bob Lane, a former adjunct professor of real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School and a practicing commercial real estate lawyer for the past 40 years. Um, During our first part of our show, we had... Sally Foster Jones, and I hope everybody was listening to that, who was the foremost uh, expert on luxury real estate in the Beverly Hills, Hollywood area. Um, And we had a fascinating talk about the very highest end of real estate in in the world uh, that Sally's uh, familiar with and has moved uh, in every aspect of real estate. And now we're going to welcome Zach Scheinberg. Zach is the managing director of Wind Raven, a terrific uh, and exciting developer, real estate developer based in New York. And he's going to talk about uh, high-end New York real estate. Zach is also one of our rotating hosts here on the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM 111. So many of you may know Zach and have listened to him. He's just joined us in the last uh, couple of months. And so, uh, Zach, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good. Uh, and if any of our listeners want to join our conversation, uh, please call us. We're live on July 13th, Friday, July 13th, an auspicious day, of course, Friday the 13th, at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Be happy to take your calls or have sh- have you share your experiences. And if you're not listening on July 13th, please feel free to email your questions to me at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And I'll either respond on my next show or um, by email. So, Zach, um, I'm glad that you, uh, you're you with us. And I understand that you were uh, listening for our, our the first part of our show with Sally. I was. And the uh, something that really resonated with me was uh, the discussion that you had about the uh, the brand awareness and brand value of the 90210 area code. I am a little bit embarrassed to say that growing up, I kind of lived vicariously through that television show. <laughs> so the first time that I went to visit L.A., I wanted to go find where the Walsh's house was, and I wanted to go find the Peach Pit. So I got very much sucked into that also. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're you're of that generation. You're a little yeah. bit younger than I am, a good bit younger than I am, I, I, <laughs> I, I will admit. Uh, maybe we just, just remind our listeners, uh, so, so many of whom know you, if you've been a guest of mine over the years, uh, as well as uh, now starting to host, uh, but just give us a, a bit about your background. Uh, sure. So I was Wharton undergrad and did Wharton MBA. I worked in the real estate business pretty much since I graduated undergrad in '02. Um, I practiced real estate law at a firm, Strook & Strook & Levan in New York. Um, I worked previously up until about 2016 for the Whitcoff Group, which is one of the preeminent uh, investors and developers based in New York, uh, focused mostly on luxury, hospitality, and residential. And in 2016, started to make this take the steps to branch out on my own. And now I'm out there looking for development deals and investment opportunities to do myself. And now I have a much greater appreciation for how challenging this actually is. Well, and you've had this incredible experience, varied experience, both as a lawyer, as a real estate professional, working for others, and, and now on your own account. Um, and I know you know the New York uh, market. In fact, your your last radio show was uh, very much about uh, rent control and, and, and housing in New York. 
Yes. Um, and I listened to a good bit of it, and it was just fascinating. I know you had uh, had a lot of uh, response from our from our listeners. But um, now we're going to talk, well, at least we're going to start off talking, and maybe we're going to move back and forth a little bit about the uh, the opposite end of real estate in New York. Uh, you know, with Sally having talked about the uh, spelling manner that she priced at $150 million and sold for $85 million, I think was the number she told us, yeah. um, and others. How does that compare to New York City? Because we think of New York City as the, you know, the, the balance of the, the, the fulcrum with, uh, with L.A., Sure. So one one difference that comes to mind immediately, and this is something when I was working at Whitcoff that we had um, we had started dealing with because when I was there we did or Whitcoff started working on its first development project in West Hollywood. Um, and one huge, very noticeable difference between the two markets is that the vast majority of New Yorkers live in um, in apartment buildings and uh, in condos for sale or for rent, whereas in Beverly Hills in the Los Angeles area most people still live in single family homes. So when we were, or when Wickhoff was looking to potentially do a high-end luxury condo in West Hollywood, it was a product out there that really didn't exist. And the risk that was being taken at the time when the project was being considered was, do people in Los Angeles actually want to live this way? And the bet was made that, yes, in fact, that people would. There's a dearth of this type of product out there, and they were going to take the risk that people want to live in an apartment building with a lot of amenities. This was actually part of a hotel, the Marriott Edition Hotel, um, and there were 25 condo units. And it turned out to pay off. Um, it did not sell for the same prices that would be a similar building would sell for in New York because the Los Angeles market just isn't there, quite there yet with respect to apartment building living um, versus where it is in New York. So that's one very, um, very obvious difference. And pricing in New York historically has been much, much higher than Los Angeles because it's on an island and there's not a lot of land and a lot of people want to live there from all over the world. So historically, people who have invested in um, and developed residential, high-end residential in New York have really been used to this type of pricing, not the $150 million apartment or $85 million apartment. Those are unusual still. Um, but the pricing historically has been higher than in Los Angeles just because of supply and demand um, factors. So that goes that – goes, uh... To maybe my maybe I'm too wedded to my wine metaphor uh, about it's it's scarcity not quality necessarily. Sure, I mean there's several factors. So the pricing in New York City uh, is really the result of the first thing that you learn in any basic economics 101 class, which is how much supply of product is there and what is the demand for that product. And um, years and years and years ago, New York was probably was I'm certain I'm certain the most expensive real estate um, on average in the country. And then at some point, I would say probably in the mid-2000s, that difference got a lot bigger because of various supply and demand um, factors, including uh, my parents' generation moving back into the city instead of moving to Florida or other vacation or um, other retirement places because they are used to the amenities and wanted to live in a place like that. People my generation staying in the city and not moving out to the suburbs. So that was putting uh, increased pressure on demand, which is driving pricing, more demand for the same amount of housing stock. The fact that it is on an island, so there isn't a lot of opportunity to build new housing uh, unless the city government would change the zoning code, which is something that's always being always under discussion, but doesn't happen very often. Uh, there was a lot of foreign money coming into the United States, especially after the recession, because people uh, who were investing wanted to put their money somewhere that was very safe. And New York City real estate was seen effectively as a bank where you might not make a ton of money given what the pricing was, but you also weren't going to lose it. And then uh, coming from countries in South America and the Far East where 
uh, there's political risk and you're not entirely sure where you put your money, if and when you're going to get it back and with what return, New York always seemed like a very safe place to go, which is why a lot of foreign money came in. So there was a lot more demand for this type of property, specifically residential, because it's safer than many other asset classes. Those prices got bid up, and as the prices got bid up, in order to execute a project and buy land um, or buy a building, you were going to have to rent out or sell condos or rent apartments for higher than um, than what the prices were before. So there, a, a bigger spread developed, which is part of the reason why New York City real estate now is just off the charts compared to every other market. In the so, US. so during the, the the quote Great Recession from uh, you know after 2008, 2008, 9, 10, uh, 11. Many areas and many of our listeners will have uh, experienced this, I'm sure, around the country. Uh, but real estate prices really plummeted in, in, in those years. N- New York didn't experience that 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 plummeting uh, for, I think, many of the reasons that you're talking about. I think it it it, it cooled for a while. Uh, but what was your, your your what was the experience going on there during the, the Great Recession just a few years ago? Yeah, so I think that's it's a good point. Um, it's very easy to think that in times of economic duress that all markets are going to be affected similarly. So uh, Miami is known to be very much a boom and bust market. So there's a lot of money coming from South America, which really drove an interest in condos and, and uh, real estate investment in Miami was driven by people trying to move money out of South America and park it in a safer place. Um, but when the, uh, the recession happened, it was very, very difficult to sell properties, to sell condos, to rent apartments, and that dried up very, very quickly. But when other markets during the recession, when they were having a problem, New York, relatively speaking, was still the, the swan versus the ugly ducklings. So while you may not make a lot of money in New York, even if you did lose a little bit of money, you're going to lose less money than you're going to lose in almost every other market. So New York still was the safe haven. So it's, I think, a big part of the reason why prices weren't that affected because people knew that they had to have money out and they had to have money invested. And the best place to do it still, despite what was going on with the overall macro economy, New York was still the best place to invest the money. I want to, I want to talk, uh, drill down a little bit on that that pricing and, and what could make it go up or down in, in, in the future and some of the other kind of housing. But let me just welcome any new listeners who have joined us uh, since our break. Uh, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM 111, the business channel powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Bob Lane a former adjunct professor of real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School and a practicing commercial real estate lawyer. We're talking with Zach Scheinberg, the managing director of Wynn Raven, a terrific uh, new uh, real estate development company based in New York. And Zach's also one of our rotating hosts here on the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM 111. So, Zach, um, can real estate in New York really just go up, up, up for forever? Um, and what would bring prices down, if anything? So that is the question that every single real estate investor and developer in New York City asks themselves every single day. I know. I got my checkbook um, out. I'm ready to write, depending <laughs> on what your answer is. <laughs> um, so I think that if you just factor in inflation, then presumably pricing would have to end. You change nothing else, then presumably prices will still have to go up. So the question really is, what will bring prices down? Um, and again, it just gets back to that your standard economics 101 question of how are supply factors going to be affected, how are demand factors going to be affected. So on the demand side, if people for some reason decide that they do not want to live in New York City anymore, um, then that is going to be a problem, and that's going to put downward price, pricing on, on real estate across the board. I don't see that happening. Um, New York City continues to grow uh, 
outsized, I believe, compared to the rest of the country. So there's increasing demand every single year for more housing in New York. So, so I don't think the demand. Yep. So so um, this uh, this is uh, something that we're not going to spend a lot of time on, but I just want you to you to to touch on or think about out loud with us uh, is well, sea level rising, the impact on, on coastal real estate from sea level rising. I, I had as a guest, and I will again soon, one of the experts on that, Michael Berman, who is in Obama's administration uh, in, in housing and urban development as the uh, senior advisor to then-Secretary Sean Donovan, and he's really become one of the uh, the academics. He's associated with Penn here as well. Um, and we'll have him on again to really talk about this in a uh, an economic analysis. But during Hurricane Sandy, everybody thinks of the Jersey Shore, people think of Miami. Uh, but New York was severely impacted by, by Hurricane Sandy. And that's because so much of it is at uh, sea level. Yeah. So, so one, of the projects, one of the projects I was working on when I was at Whitcoff, a project 150 Charles Street, which is all the way in... Um, uh, all the way on the west side, right on the, uh, I guess, west or west street of the, um, the whatever the highway is, the west side highway. And during the construction, when Sandy happened, that was when we were in foundations and had dug the, the, the bathtub. So Sandy happened, and the bathtub got significantly filled with water, which because of the, the sea level issues and because of the rain. And we spent a lot of time, and uh, there was a significant amount of delay to pump all the water out. Um, so fortunately, though, compared to some other markets, New York City, I would say, is probably less at risk from the sea rising, even though it's right on the water, just given where the elevation is. But places like Miami Beach, where I'm doing a project right now, converting a condo into a hotel right on Indian Creek, which is the waterway between um, the mainland and Miami Beach. And the city has spent a significant amount of money building up seawalls to the point where if you stand on the terrace outside the front of what's going to be a hotel – your views have become significantly blocked to the water um, because they're building up these seawalls in order to prevent against rising sea level. They're spending a lot of money on it, and anybody who spent time in Miami and Miami Beach, specifically Miami Beach, when there have been big storms, you know that you're driving through water that's probably up to the top of the wheels in your car. So it's a serious issue that I don't think it really has affected pricing of assets yet, but if we continue going down this road, I have no doubt that it's going to. I mean, as soon as very wealthy people in and around that area uh, can't get their boats out anymore because they can't get under bridges that don't go up like drawbridges, that's going to have a huge impact on the value of real estate down there. That's a really interesting observation. I mean, one of the things that you and I wanted to talk about is whether and how core Manhattan pricing would affect the outer boroughs. For all listeners around the country, I'm sure you know that New York City is a city of five boroughs, uh, Manhattan being the uh, the core but Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens, and the borough of Richmond, which is known as Staten Island. And our engineer just reminded me about how Staten Island was uh, affected during uh, Hurricane Sandy. Uh, so while, while you're suggesting that Manhattan won't be as materially affected, what about the outer boroughs? So when it comes to the real estate, the New York City real estate economy, uh, as prices uh, have gone up and up and up in New York, it's affected the boroughs to make them more attractive because when people are deciding whether or not they want to rent an apartment or buy a condo, price is a huge issue. So if, if and people can only can only afford a certain amount of money sometimes, and oftentimes when you're going to rent an apartment or you're going to buy a condo, many people usually spend a little bit more than they want to. But there is a there is a ceiling on what somebody can afford. So when pricing in Manhattan or any other market gets too expensive, that's when people start to look. A little farther out, so one more subway stop out or one more bus stop out, 
Um, and as a result of the skyrocketing prices in, New- in Manhattan over the last 10 or so years, uh, pricing in the outer boroughs has, has gone up also, not to the same extent and not at the same level, but certain neighborhoods of, of Brooklyn, which were considered marginal you know, four or five years ago, are now good markets for owners, and prices have gone up because people are moving out there because they still want to be in New York. They probably want to be around the subway line, and they just can't afford stuff that's closer in because more people have bought it and prices have gone up. So it, Manhattan doing really, really well affects the boroughs. I would say the boroughs. I would say as you get far and farther away, there's less of an effect. But as Manhattan does better, Dumbo, downtown Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights, Park Slope, um, those neighborhoods are doing doing better as the prices have gone up. And it's the same thing in Queens, although a little bit more slowly. So Long Island City and Astoria have done a lot better over the last 10 years, and prices have gone up to the point where uh, in, in buildings in Long Island City now, new-built buildings are paying more per square foot than I'm paying in an apartment on First Avenue um, in New York City proper. So new building, an area that you can just jump on the subway, you're two stops away from the Central Park. Um Pricing has been pushed outward, and, and prices are going up also. But those will also be the first neighborhoods that take a hit if there is an economic change. Yeah. So, And actually, you made a, a, a very good point in terms of mass transit, um, having a, as mass transit um, in cities expands and gets better and more served. That, that has a major impact on real estate. Now, we focused so far, Zach, uh, on this show. We, we spent the first 30 minutes on Los Angeles and Beverly Hills, and now we've been talking about New York. Um, what you know, many of our listeners and, and most of the country is in between. <laughs> what what are some other cities that that you're familiar with? You mentioned Miami, but what are the are there any other cities whose economics are substantially uh, extreme in in this sense? Um, I don't think so. Uh, the larger cities, because New York, I think, is detached from New York is detached from every other market in the United States, and then the next market that is most heavily focused on they would be los angeles i would say los angeles and miami washington dc is a little sleepy and so is chicago because they're just i would say not as sexy and a lot of the way that of course um, if you're in uh, chicago you might take issue with that so i apologize to our windy city uh, residents (laughs) there's no question and and i mean i mean uh, sexy with respect to um, institutional investors so a lot of institutional investment money is focused on right. markets like Los and Angeles. And certainly the international market uh, focuses yeah. on the on – the, on the, yeah. And then so for – and then with inter- international markets, I think the ones that are most closely connected to New York would be London and Hong Kong. Um, and part of the reason that so much money was spent in New York City real estate, again, going back 10 or 15 years and bid the prices up of these assets is because there was such a discrepancy between the housing pricing in Hong Kong and London, those two, versus what it was in New York, that – international buyers or international investors who were looking to put money somewhere in a safe haven thought they were getting a very good deal in New York City. That's not the case anymore because the prices largely have equilibrated. But London and Hong Kong also historically were two other cities where people would put money because they knew it was a legally safe place to have money. And when they were ready to either sell an asset or uh, monetize whatever the investment was, they knew that it would still be there. So it's it's fascinating and very instructive about the connection, how you're connecting the supply and demand of money and investment and safety with real estate. So, yep. again, it's not so much the quality or appeal of the real estate as much as it is these extrinsic factors. Sure. Well, the, it's, all, it's all related, and it's hard to tease out how much impact any one factor has on a price of real estate. But as there's more demand to invest in, for example, an apartment building in New York City because foreign money is coming in and it wants to go somewhere – the price of that asset goes up, which means the return goes down, um, which means in order to kind of make um, make the return that you need to make, oftentimes 
you're going to have to raise rent. And as rents continue to go up and these assets continue to get bid up, it it really does affect the market. But international markets now are um, now are all interconnected, and capital markets are all interconnected. And it's important to watch trends in other cities in order to really understand what's happening wherever you are. And as our globe continues to shrink, all these factors are going to become more and more pronounced. Uh, but we're now at the coming to the end of our hour. And uh, Zach, I want to thank you, but I also want to thank uh, both of our generous guests, Sally Foster Jones, who we had on the first half of our show for her time about talking about luxury real estate on the West Coast. And Zach Scheinberg, the managing director of Wind Raven, one of our rot- rotating hosts here in the Real Estate Hour, for talking about the New York market and some some other cities. I want to thank our producer Patty McMillan, standing in for Patty Hall, and our great sound engineer Danielle Bruno for making us sound so well and good and keeping us uh, on the up and up. So, in any event, listeners, if you have time, uh, please l- look for our show. Will be repeated throughout the week. And stay with us for Behind the Markets, which is coming up now. Thank you, and have a great weekend. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.